You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. There was such a weighty sense of the truth of the Lord here this morning. Um, It was hard for people to to really digest what the Lord was doing, but I do believe there was something deposited in our church this morning that was significant. And... um, And anytime we have a guest, I want us to sow into their ministry. I want us to take up an offering right now uh, for Bob and his wife and just sow into and, and demonstrate out of a heart of generosity uh, how thankful we are that they've given of themselves to come and invest in a community. Honestly, they didn't, they don't, we weren't on their radar, but they were willing to sacrifice and come. And so um, I, I want us to take up an offering this evening for Bob. Um, can we do that, church family? They, he deposited something in us. I want us to sow generously into them. And so you can use the envelopes in the seatback uh, pockets in front of you. Um, otherwise, you can also give online if you can throw that info uh, up on the screen. You can also give online. Just designate other, and the entire offering tonight will go to, go to the Gladstones. Um, Dr. Bob, would you mind standing just so we could pray over you? Just We, we always want to give Holy Spirit an opportunity to bless our guests in this house. Could you just extend your hands towards, towards Bob? Lord, we're asking for supernatural strength, wholeness, and a fresh anointing in this season. And what a deep well of uh, like gut level, like blood, sweat, and tears that's been invested into the ground of the kingdom, establishing that here on earth that's evident through this man's life. And I just pray that these years to come would be so fruitful for what he's contending for in North Carolina, in that region, but also the the work that he's sowing into across the nation. Lord, I pray for fruit. And even tonight, I pray for a touch that he's not expecting. He came to give, he came to, 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 to give of himself, to impart. Lord, I pray that you would also surprise him just with a, a touch from God and encouragement to his soul and to, to his heart, both him and Gina in your mighty name, amen. So please give, dig deep. I want us to be a generous people as the family of God here in Ames, amen? Awesome. Let's all stand to our feet and welcome Bob Gladstone as he comes one more time. Praise God. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to begin again in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. I'm not going to talk about that passage, but I'm going to use it as a a landing strip into the next one. I want to teach on Ephesians 4 for a few minutes here. So you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Um, I was praying a few things uh, today, earlier, and then tonight during worship, and it's cool to hear them prayed also by Pastor Drew. Uh, We had some overlap. I really felt like the Lord did want to do something in my own heart and family. I was praying that. And you guys already have ministered to me earlier in the two services this morning. I really did receive ministry from uh, the Holy Spirit through you all. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying that to 
just be nice. Um, I mean, I don't mind being nice, but that's not the reason why I'm doing it. I, I, it really happened, and I thank you for that. And I, anyway, there are other things you prayed that were also things I was praying. So I take that as the Lord's kiss and confirmation, including the prayer I want to open up with. So let's, let's open up in prayer tonight for this uh, teaching as well. Because, Abba, Father, we really don't want any work of the flesh or any human intellect outside of the anointing and revelation of your spirit. We need the mystery revealed, the mystery that is your wonderful son, Jesus Christ, in his beauty and in his glory that is so utterly distinct, so unique, so divine, so human, so special, so beautiful, so captivating. Father, we pray for an unveiling of Christ that captivates our hearts and that also penetrates our hearts into something deep, transformative, convictional, and practical. I pray for you, precious folks, in the name of Jesus, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing Greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, all of this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Ephesians 3.14, we've been reading it. I, I, I would urge you all in your prayer time and when it's appropriate, when you're together, to pray some of these prayers, to read them through and pray them. That was Ephesians 1. I was just praying, 1.15 and following. Uh, here's 3.14, another prayer. Colossians 1, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians, including not just chapter 1, but chapter 3, I believe there's a prayer there. These are, you know, Paul knows how to pray. He knows the vision and eternal purpose of God. And they're great prayers to pray over our region for one another, for leaders to pray for people that are in congregations that they serve. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the wealth of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person, so that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth and to know the love of the Messiah which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in the Messiah Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Chapter four, verse one. Paul closed a section of the letter to the Ephesians, probably to other churches in the region. In the first three chapters, though it was very prayerful, the entire first chapter is praise and then intercession, and then half of chapter three is intercession. Still, um, in, in, through the prayers and in the other material, uh, in chapters two and half of three, Paul is basically unveiling the gospel of Jesus Christ in a particular way. In, um, specifically, he's referring to Jesus' victory in the cross, resurrection, and ascension, and how that creates a new community. So that, that was Paul's urgency. He was basically explaining the gospel. He was doing some good, wholesome, biblical theology explaining basically that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension creates a new people, even Jews and Gentiles, which implies all nations can find true union in love because of Christ's victory in the Spirit. At the end of that section, he prays as we just read, and now he begins an exhortation. So this, the, the whole second half of Ephesians is taking the first half, the first three chapters, and saying, okay, now in light of this exalted Christ and all that he accomplished, I exhort you. Exhortation is a powerful phenomenon. It's a spiritual phenomenon. It's a, a powerful way of motivating. It, it, it takes truth, uh, things that God has accomplished in history on our behalf, and when we believe, it takes truth that has now been deposited inside of us, the transformation of our identity. We're the children of God, amen. We're the community of faith, amen. That's who we are. It's who we're born to be when we're born again. Uh, exhortation takes all that truth and that reality, lets it soak in our hearts, say, do you like that? Do you like that? It's true. Do you like Isn't that awesome? Are you motivated? Yes. Okay, therefore, in light of that, here's what we need to do. Take that truth that God granted you for free, and put it into action. Practical life. Here is that exhortation in Ephesians. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Okay, I'm in Ephesians 4.1. Started reading again. Sorry, didn't make that clear. Okay. I exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to people. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of the Messiah until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of the Messiah. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects, into him who is the head, I'm talking about the Messiah, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And I'm going to stop reading there. I'm not going to fill my preaching time with just reading the Bible. You could do that at home. However, uh, lengthy readings of Scripture are appropriate, I think, in a church setting. We probably need more of that overall. I want to teach just some highlights from this passage tonight. This bit at the end of that passage, because in verse 17, Paul then enters back into his exhortation. You know, he started exhorting, walk worthily. Humility, gentleness, love, tolerance. And then he branches off into some more theology for a minute, which we just read. That was most of the passage. Because Paul realizes, and I know it's the way he's actually thinking, but even now that I started to exhort, this exhortation to real unity requires they understand another snapshot of what God accomplished in Christ in the gospel message. So we're going to focus a little bit on that. But this, this last bit that I read is just something to highlight for a moment. The body, though completely ruled by Jesus and led by the Spirit in our love for one another, in our work of service, serving one another and serving the world around us through the gospel, discipleship, all of that's God-led, God-ordained, God-anointed, okay? Everything's by grace, but when we have received what God has given us in Christ and in the Spirit, and when we understand what we have, we are meant to steward that grace. 
And we are responsible to build up the body. When the body is properly in line with its head, through the description of virtues and activities described in that passage, we're building ourselves up. In other words, if we don't partner with God and do it, it ain't going to get done. And the fact that we don't do it, and I don't mean you guys, the fact that we as a larger church where we do fail, where we don't do it, it's because according to this passage, we're just plain immature. There's a lack of maturity. And immaturity is 10 or 11 times out of 10 marked by selfishness. Feed me. Give me. What is, how does this church meet my needs? What's in this for me? I like that one because they have this for me. I like this one because they have this for me. This is the kingdom of God. It's not the mall. The mark of maturity is I'm a member of the body of Christ. How can I be here and love my brothers and sisters and serve them, serve God, and serve the people around me? That's the mark of maturity. In fact, I'll say just real quick here in verse 14, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there. And he goes on to describe the tossing. I mean, there's a picture of passivity. Passivity means, you know, selfish. Just wherever the wind blows, I'll just go wherever. Whatever the new fad, whatever the new doctrinal thing is, whatever the popular thing is, the cool speaker, false doctrine, good doctrine, it's all manipulated by people because immaturity, being selfish, is also passive. So the picture of the children the word children there is used negatively. We shouldn't be like little children in the negative sense, meaning immature, undeveloped. The mark of that is passivity because of selfishness. We're subject to the powers of the air, even if we're Christians, because we're selfish. Selfishness is the opposite of the cross. The alternative in verse 15 is the people are active. They take initiative. They speak the truth in love. Now, that verse is usually taken out of context. And by the way, it works out of context. So that's not a bad thing. There's an important principle there. When we speak to people, it should be the truth in love. But Paul's point in the larger context is these are not passive little children who are being dictated to. These people produce. They're not consumers. They're producers. They're not passive. They're, not, they're active. They speak the truth in love. And the power of their speech in love causes the body to grow. And that is so powerful. Do, do we realize, I mean, I, I don't question you, even myself. I don't think I have any idea the potential that's in this room right now. It's like a massive spiritual arson. If we would just get whole, which is my way of saying equipped, and activated by the Spirit and in our own lives. Now, with that takes a lot of risk. A lot of risk comes when people are activated. That's why Paul fought a lot of battles in his ministry, because he activated the saints. He didn't control them, and there was a lot of vulnerabilities, and people can do and say weird things, and they have to be confronted and, and, and trained and submitted and, you know, affirmed by the Spirit and by people. You know, when you really give people more latitude, it could get pretty interesting, but it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk to equip and activate the body to do the work of service. I got to stay on track here. 
So what I want to do for a few moments, highlighting a few more things here, I want to, I want to, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul is teaching here, verse 8, he specifies it, the ascension. I want to remind us all that Jesus has ascended on high. And that's part of the gospel announcement. In fact, that's the crowning moment of the gospel story. The gospel is not just Jesus loves you and died for you. Now, that's true and part of it. But the the full gospel is, is, well, it's just that. It's full. It's a broad spectrum of truth. It's a story announcement of how Jesus became king. And uh, because he came king, became king, we can be saved. So he's the saving king. But he had to become king in order for us to be saved. Because his way of becoming king was dying for our sins so that he could have a people because kings need people to express their royalty. I say that in the plural. Really, the one main king is Jesus. And by nature, if he's going to be a king, he wants to rule a people. The way he rules a people is not to dictate, dominate, and oppress them, though he is the Lord and we ought to do what he says, but to use the glory, majesty, substance, greatness, gift set, authority, and power of his kingship to serve others. That's the way of our king. So it's good that he's king. That's why the specific, see, he's not just generic king. He's not just the Lord generally. He's the king by virtue of the fact that he came as the son. He is the son forever. He came as an obedient son and he did his father's will and he suffered and he laid his life down because that was the necessary price to be paid for our sins. That's the way he became king. It was a specific route up the mountain. He didn't just exert himself in heaven and say, no, I'm king. I mean, he can't be king that way with us as his loyal people unless he dies for us. And because he died in obedience to the Father, God raised him from the dead. That was the upside of his going down into humility, suffering, and a torturous death. God raised him up and made him royal over the whole universe. That's the way he became king. Through suffering and death. Through humility. And he taught his people the same thing. If you lift yourself up, you're going to be brought down. But if you bring yourself down, it doesn't mean cursing yourself or speaking poorly of yourself. It means lowering yourself to serve others. If you bring yourself down, God will raise you up. That's the way he operates. So it's my job not to exalt myself, but to humble myself. God will lift me up in due time. That's the way of the king. But it's not often talked about that after God raised him from the dead, Jesus ascended through all the heavens to the right hand of God. It it is talked about, but not often talked about, and not often talked about in terms of its implications. Here in this passage... Paul explains that Jesus ascended and specifically by virtue of his ascension equips the church to be the church. Biblically, as a community of faith, as people that have been equipped to love one another, build up one another, and take that same power into the harvest field. 
that specifically comes via the ascension. Which is often why I believe the ascension instinctively is often ignored. Because it implies a kind of equipping and community life that we're not really ready for as the church. So we instinctively avoid the very thing, the ascension that defines the church. According to Ephesians 4, the ascension defines the church. We love Jesus' benefits, but we want to keep a ceiling on his achievements. No, we don't. Not really. I believe in the ascension. Yeah, but let's think about it. When Jesus appeared to Miriam outside the tomb, John 20, uh, she's shocked, of course. Once she finds out it's Jesus, she first thinks he's the gardener. Where have you laid him? Jesus says, Mary, Miriam, and he, she recognizes his voice, and she says, Rabboni, my teacher, and she runs and she takes hold of him. You know, one translation says, touch me not as if keep your distance, but no, she was grabbing on. The, the word there means stop touching me, so stop. Okay, he's not mad. <laughs> um, he's just, uh, he's jealous to complete his course because he says, Stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. He's making a point. It's not that he doesn't like devotion. He appreciates her love, but she doesn't see the full scope of what he came to do. And he's saying, I do. And I'm jealous to finish. Okay, the powers that I defeated and the sins that I was able to cover through my death, God affirmed that through my resurrection. Now the victory is here but I'm going to take that throne. I'm going to physically go up into the heavens and I'm going to take that throne because it's from that place I'll pour out my spirit and I'll enable my people not just to be a bunch of individuals who are saved, but to be a community of faith that's called the church. That happens through the ascension. We could be saved by the power of the resurrection, but we become the church by the overflow of the ascension. Which is why he was telling Miriam, stop clinging to me. Because we want Jesus in that revival mode. Come and just give us that life surge. It's like, actually what I want to do is completely reconstitute the way you do church and ministry. That's what I want. But you're holding on to me at the resurrection level. You want to keep me here. So I could give you life, but then you do, you conduct church y'all's way. So he's kind of saying to us in some of our prayer meetings, stop clinging to me. Because you're clinging to me under a ceiling that I've broken two millennia ago. I broke it. Come on, he's sovereign. And the mark of his sovereignty is the church described in the latter portion of that passage I read. Are you hearing me? The body, powerful, speaking the truth, building itself up, being a body, not an assembly, merely a body. The church is called his body. That was the prayer I prayed at the beginning. He's the head of all things, there's sovereignty to the church. There's the connection, see that? And then Paul qualifies, which is his body. It's not just an assembly, it's a body. The parts fit together and work together. And we don't have the fullness of Jesus without the fullness of the body. 
That's the way he's chosen to reveal himself. The world and even the skies have yet to see the fullness of Christ because he's waiting for his body to enter fullness. He's waiting for us to relate to the ascension. That's another way of saying he's waiting for us truly, biblically, practically to relate to his sovereignty. You want to see my sovereignty? Don't just talk about how some people are saved and some people are chosen for not to be saved. That's not the real impulse of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is seen in a people who love one another. With the love they have for God, they love one another secondarily. And they are together a body unit that embodies him on the earth. Not a political entity that wants to see something earthly restored. No, we want to see Christ fully expressed to, in, and through a body. And that can't happen unless we become that body. That's why Paul, in the all exhorting, he's getting to the exhorting part you know, of Ephesians, says, be the body, be the body. He says, now wait, I gotta talk a little bit more about this. Just like Ephesians 1, I gotta unpack, uh, uh, the, the prayer of Ephesians 1, I have to unpack that a little bit more. The, the implications of his sovereignty, that's a covenant people. And if we don't get covenant people the way this text describes it, then we don't have the practical application of his ascension in our lives either. And the defeated powers traffic with more authority than the one who has dominated them and become sovereign over them through death, resurrection, and ascension. Do you hear, do you hear what I'm saying? This is why I'm so urgent even about the most simple things regarding the constitution of the church. Because for me, it's not because I like hanging out and drinking coffee with people. I do like that. I like it being more cozy in a home. It's, that's, that's not cozy. When, anyway, I'm not going to tell you stories of the price paid for hosting and the stains and all that. We all get that. It's, it, it's because for me, this is what's at stake. It's, it's King Jesus. Not just as, as something we say, but as something we live. Jesus is king. How do we know? Because we love one another. Because we're trying to find out how to be a unit not just a passive audience to a clergy. This pastor that I'm, I, I, I'm connected with uh, out a little bit. It, I, okay, I gotta, I gotta remember where I'm at. Okay, somewhere else. Um, he was asking me, what are you guys gonna do in response to COVID? What are you gonna do about your church meetings? I said, we're gonna do what we always do. We operate a certain way. We don't have questions of how we're gonna do all this and, we, we just going to continue. Now, people still had to decide whether or not they were going to, to even meet in homes, and that was still an issue, meet at all. That was still an issue. I'll grant you that. But he had questions about things that we don't even deal with because our whole, our whole idea is the saints do this. They're not conducted. To me, that's not a very effective declaration of my leadership that I got to be there to conduct things. It's like they're equipped to do this, and we... We, we, there's risk with that. But they're going to do what we've equipped them to do. That's our job. Our job is not to be the orchestra leader. Our job is to be the servants underneath in the basement who lift them up and equip them with all the risks that come therein. And that's the way Jesus designed this. So if we don't have that pattern of equipping the saints to do the work of service, then we don't have King Jesus. Let, let me, uh, at least, we, we, 
We do to a degree, but we put a ceiling on his sovereignty. Let, let, me, let me show you a little pattern here in backwards order. Okay, look at verse 13. It, Paul uses terms like maturity and fullness. How do you get maturity? Where the, the church is connected to the head and makes one new man. Well, you go to the uh, beginning of that verse. It also speaks of unity. How do we get such unity, maturity, and fullness? Well, back up to verse 12, the building up of the body of Christ. you got to build. That's a mixed metaphor, by the way. Body is organic. Building is not organic. <laughs> but Paul really loves to mix those metaphors in this passage. You build the body. So to, to be unified, you have to build the body. Well, how do you build the body? It's very specific. The saints build the body. The saints do it. Just across the board, the people of God, they do the building. Well, how are they effective at building? They're equipped. So we're going backwards in order. This is the paper trail back to the sovereignty of Jesus. The sovereignty of Jesus is seen in a body. How do you get to that body? How do you get unified and mature? Well, the saints have to build the body. The saints have to do it. If only the clergy does it, which, of course, I don't even like that distinction, but still, we, we do it. We have clergy and we have laity. We shouldn't. It's not biblical. But it's the way we operate, even if we don't like using those terms. If only the clergy does it, the body will just not get built. Because God doesn't design it that way. It's like, I'm not, I don't care what you saw in a vision. This is what the Word says. If the saints aren't actively building up one another, then it's not going to happen. <laughs> so how do you build the body? Well, you, the saints have to do it. How do the saints do it? They get equipped, so they do need equipping. How do they get equipped? The five ministries. So I, I know there's times the five, you know, people get up and teach and things like that. Obviously, I'm doing it. I'm not fully against it, but it's not like what I think is the answer. Right? The, the job of the five is, is primarily not to be up conducting, but to be equipping. So the people do it. <laughs> and of course, within that and community life, people need healing and they need shepherding and they need correction and care. And there's a place for shepherds, elders in the city. But that's something we get to after we get this straight. Instead of uh, kind of sanctifying our traditions by the need of having leaders conduct everything. It's like, let's get this straight and then talk about how elders eld and pastors pastor. So we're finding our way back up to King Jesus. Maturity, unity, how do you get that? Building the body, how do you get that? Saints do the work, they do the work. How do they do that? The five different kinds of leaders equip them. Sorry, this isn't a, a teaching on detailing the, each one of the five, doing it as a general principle. So where do the five come from? The ascended Lord. The five ministries are the expression of the exalted King Jesus. They replace the principalities and powers in influence in the church. Humans, not just people who are born again, but people who are anointed and appointed and graced to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. They replace the evil tyrants in the invisible world and they become the influence 
from Christ through them to make people whole and whole people roll up their sleeves and serve out of love and they build. And that's how you get what we're going for. So I want to highlight a couple of other things. Having said that, putting kind of a semicolon there, I want to highlight again this issue of ascension in a few verses, eight and following. He ascended on high. He led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. I just want to proclaim it again. This is part of the gospel. It is the crowning moment of the gospel. Jesus has taken his throne. He is now the king of America and China and Japan and Belize and Mexico and Australia, all seven continents, which I found out there's seven. I used to think there were six, but now there are seven. I don't know. I don't know if that has something to do with Pluto losing its, (laughs) I have no idea, but I, I am married to a homeschool mom and I am educationally submitted to my homeschooled children, and I learned some things. I remember asking my son when he was in homeschool, high school, how do you say this Latin word? (laughs) Oh, my. And he told me. You know, anyway. Um, So, yeah. Seven continents. Let's find our way back. La, da, 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 da. Um, he, Jesus is king now. He has not invaded and exerted his kingship on the nations geopolitically. We influence them to certain degrees and to some degrees more than others. That's great. But he's not ruling on the earth from Jerusalem right now, overseeing all aspects of life on earth, everything political, economy, local authorities, transportation, education. He's not doing that yet. But he does have that sovereignty now. He's just not exerting himself geopolitically. That's not the way the plan's designed. Some people think we'll take those things over. I don't believe that's true. I believe Jesus will come back and set up his kingdom. Our business is to do what we're talking about tonight. Let's get that first. Before we decide we're going to rule mountains and whatever. Okay. Let's do this. Come on, let's conquer our souls. It's in this passage, it's in the spirit that Paul says, don't be angry with one another. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give a place to the devil. You want to exercise the sovereignty of Jesus? You want to take over the entertainment industry and you're bitter toward one another? And you don't even know what koinonia is at this stage? And you want to take over these, I mean, what in the world? Let's be the Jesus people. And then see if there's room left to what God wants to do. (laughs) Besides announce the day of the Lord on top of that. Anyway, his sovereignty is expressed through a people. It's our job to line up with that. Okay, where was I? What was the the last thing I said? Where where did I leave off? Yes, the ascension, of course, the ascension, but... Okay, well, in any case, this is the paper trail back up to Jesus' ascension. If we want to relate to him as king, then we must be this kind of people. Once we get that, once we're in alignment with that, we'll see what else the Lord has for us besides preaching the gospel and making disciples. We'll see if there's anything else we're supposed to be doing. So about this ascension, okay. 
He's not just exalted above. Paul says he's exalted far above. Far above all rule and authority. And here it says he ascended far above all the heavens. So I quoted chapter one. Now I'm quoting chapter four again. So Jesus is like really king. If he were just above all the heavens, that's enough. If he's above all the powers, that's enough. Paul says far above them. There's no match now. They're utterly defeated. They're gutted. And he is the sovereign. He's he's more sovereign than we can ever conceive. If we saw and understood the breadth of his majesty, our little tiny hearts would just pop. And the end of us. Like the little mosquito that hits the blue light. That's it. He's king. He fills all things. Absolutely sovereign. There's no little tiny corner of the universe. There's not even a speck of dust that's holding out. Everything evil is defeated. Everything. It is finished. Now we're enduring to the end, fulfilling his purpose. He'll come back and show creation. I am that sovereign. He is king. But when Paul says he ascended, he says now, and this isn't just some, this isn't like a blab a blab Gladstone tangent. This is Paul. Paul's tangent is not me trailing off wondering how to get back. He's anointed and he's expressing something he has to pause and say. Okay, if I'm speaking of his ascension, I'm going to articulate yet again the spirit of that massive sovereignty. He descended. That's the spirit of our king. He ascended because he was willing to descend lower than any human has ever gone. That's the secret to his success as king. And that's what Paul mentions before he mentions the five ministries. You want to be an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher? And I know we're not all called to that, so I'm not just going to talk about that. But the way leadership is often conducted in our culture They're the ones that are up here, you know, striking the pose and being the ruler. And we set the vision for this house sort of thing. It's just this dominance. It's like, that's not the spirit of the king. The spirit of the king, he goes down and then God raises him up. And then that's the same stamp on these five ministries. Apostles are the first ones mentioned, but they're not the head of major networks, the prominent great leaders. You could be a great leader and not be an apostle. They're basement dwellers. They're foundational. They should be leading the way in secret service because they set the tone for the entire church. That's why Paul constantly said, do what I did, do what I did. Copy me, copy me, copy me. Adopt my ways. You'll be the church. God, the God of peace will be with you. Who can say that? Come on, Philippians 4. Who, seriously, who can say that? Paul said, if you saw it in me, heard it in me, received it from me, learned it from me, practice those things, and the God of peace will be with you. <laughs> we pray for manifestation. Paul says, just copy my life. God will manifest himself to you. <clears throat> That's... That's an extraordinary grace gift. 
But he's a basement dweller because this, that's why he's writing these things. He descended. That's how he ascended. And we all bear his stamp. That's how we equip people. We don't use them to promote our ministries. We use our grace to promote their ministries. That's the spirit of the king. So in my last few minutes, I want to talk to you very briefly about what this, the way this descent is characterized. The humility of the Messiah, to me, is the key to this whole thing. It sets the whole chain reaction off. He ascended because he descended. That's the key. He descended, therefore God could raise him up on high, and he produces these five ministries. And in the same, minist- in the same spirit, the five ministries make people whole because they care, and they're working hard, and then those whole people just build, and the thing explodes. The descent of the Christ is the humility of the Christ, and humility is characterized by three things I'm going to highlight tonight, and really I'm just going to list them. I'm going to say a few things and just, and then call us unto that same spirit of humility. But humility is characterized, the, the three things that I'm going to mention anyway, they're, humility is characterized by, first of all, servanthood. We're here to serve, even with our gifts. Servanthood I'm going to mention here, oddly, it may sound odd, but I'm going to mention it. Um, I don't know what order to put it in, but I'm going to make mention of it now. Okay, innocence, no agenda, pure heart. To me, that's a huge part of humility, is being innocent like children. And thirdly, what we already talked about this morning, I won't have time to expand further, but I want to mention it again. Weakness, embracing weakness letting that characterize us in our humanity and our frailty so that we can translate that into dependence upon God in prayer. And then, as Paul says, the power of Christ rests upon me. I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ would just dwell upon me. And he even... By the way, he even says, I guess I'm going in backwards order, but he says, Jesus was crucified out of weakness, but he lives out of power. And so do we, Paul says. And then he says, we are weak in him, but we will be powerful in him. Apparently speaking of the resurrection age, but he already has mentioned his own power in ministry because he's weak. It's it's both Embracing the weakness of Christ, all those little things and big things that just remind us of our needs. You realize if no one's going through anything, any kind of trial, any resistance, any challenge whatsoever, all of our weaknesses are still there. We're just less aware of them. So thank God for the things that remind us how weak we are. So we can develop a dependence that's utter. It's not just, you know, periodic, but it's absolute. It's like my... Like the psalmist says, and David says in Psalm 109, I believe, I am prayer. (laughs) I don't just pray, I am prayer. I'm constantly bent toward the Lord because I'm so weak and needy. And his betrayers and persecutors constantly reminded him of that. Innocence is something I wanted to mention because you guys have this. You are innocent. There's a sweet, pure spirit about you. God loves innocence. We talk a lot about holiness and ethical living as we should, 
but I believe one of the foundational elements of that is people who are just pure of evil agenda or any kind of evil whatsoever. They're just like children. They're chaste in their spirits. They're virgin. <clears throat> Something so sweet about innocence that draws God like a magnet. And it gives us perception of mysteries. Blessed are the pure in heart they shall See God. Real revelation that's going to be needed in this hour is not just for the people that are gifted as seers and prophetic people. It's for the innocent to discern. The little children, I mean, when, you're, when we're grown and little children, now you got some sweet innocence there. They'll discern anything a mile away. They'll just stay sweet about it, but they won't compromise. I sense something on that person. Something's not right. I'm going to pray. They don't judge. They're little children. They're innocent of that. Come on, we need the spirit of Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. And it says, come and see. And then it says, Jesus saw him. So Jesus is always the, the initiator. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no guile. That's, that's a true Israelite. That's what, that's what we meant. When the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit chose Israel, that's what we wanted. We wanted people like that. No guile, innocent. No ambition. No agenda where you got to elbow people out of your way. No little sneaky way to calculate what you say to please people so they'll like you or not like you or be favorable to you because you need their favor. There's nothing like that. Just free. Just Nathaniel. No guile. Jesus is like, oh, I see that. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? He says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And what does Nathaniel say? You're the king of Israel. <laughs> Just like that. That's what innocence does. You're the king. You're the king. Jesus says, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see greater things than these. But for one as guileless as Nathaniel, it was enough. Ah, I see your majesty. That's all I need. What camaraderie between these two sweet, innocent souls? Jesus, so utterly pure, so pure of heart, so without guile, <clears throat> so without political spirit. Come on, connecting in the green room. He calls his best friend Satan at one point. He's like, I'm going to call it like I see it. I love you enough to do that. Innocence. Oh man, when I, I mean, I, we all got to deal with things. I'm ironing things out in my own life. God help me. You know, I've been through one of the hardest seasons of my life in, in the past several months, and I found out, Lord, there's areas of my heart that aren't innocent. I still got me just driving the, driving the bus still, going over what this dude did to me in the worst of my sickness in April. I'm going over my head what this guy did, what this guy did. It's like, what is my deal? I'm 50 something years old, I'm an elder. Not just politically appointed. I've been approved according to the scriptural standards. And look at me in this sickbed. This is terrible. I don't thank God for the sickness, but I thank God for the situation that brought this up. I had to give that to the Lord and have him expunge that, squeeze it out of me, get victory. It's like, good night, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm supposed to be an example to other people. I'm going over this thing laying on my couch. Of course, that didn't help much, Watching the parent trap. 
the old one, which I remembered as a kid was good, and it was literally made me sick. Er, sicker. I had to go to the emergency room. It's because of the parent trap. I, I pray that you cultivate this spirit of innocence that, that already has you. The Holy Spirit is innocent. He, he, he blushes at the slightest bit of compromise or dust. Way over, out, way, it, it's, it's not, he's not just some overbearing rule, you know, rule maker, although he has commands, we obey him. But he's, he's more than that. He's a dove. He's innocent. You know how hard it is to get a dove to fly on your shoulder? He comes to innocence. He comes to meekness. And when he blushes, we ought blush. Not just, well, is this right? Is this wrong? I'm free to do this. I can talk this way. Don't you know the Holy Spirit? He's like a child. He's almighty, but he's so sweet. He's so tender. He's so innocent. Just the slightest little thing makes him blush. The slightest little compromise, that coarse jesting, that little joke, ha, 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 we're free. We don't live under religious rules. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit's weeping, grieving. It's like big deal so you, you know how to manipulate a few rules and claim your false freedom in Christ, but you don't know me. I'm the innocent one. I'm, I'm innocence. If you knew me, then you would, you would blush when I blushed. So restore your innocence. It's part of the descent that gives us authority and helps us see the mysteries. And finally, of course, servitude. Everything we have is so that we can follow the same spirit of Christ, which is servitude. That's the spirit of Christ. He lowers himself to serve. And he gave himself as an example, as you well know in John 13, washing feet, he was resisted because that's the lowest position in a social context where honor and shame meant your, 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 your place in society. The, a leader ought not to wash feet. He's a rabbi and all of this. This should never be for you, Lord. Jesus says, you don't let me serve you. You have no part of me. Because if, you know, if, if you don't let me serve you, which isn't that what Jesus did to us? He served us. If you don't let me serve you, you're not going to be a servant. You, you don't understand my kingdom. This is my whole kingdom is I wash dirty feet. That's what kings do. And then Jesus got back up to his place and he said, you call me Lord and teacher. And you're right, I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. That's the spirit of our king. That's what unveils the mysteries to our eyes. And that's the spirit behind the whole building of the church. So may God grant you the spirit of Christ in fresh waves and deposits of grace. As even now we join together in worship and prayer and whatever else you all will be doing during this time, I pray that the Lord will meet you and activate some of these very virtues and graces in your hearts. And you know what? Mine too. I'm literally under conviction as I'm saying these things. But let us all seek the Lord together for mercy and grace. God bless you guys. Amen. You don't stand to your feet. The climax of Sunday nights for us is a perfect response to what Bob was calling us to. 
submission to the Lord and humbling ourselves. And so our vision for these evenings as a church family is to gather at the altar before the Lord amongst all generations. The kids will be joining us here in a few moments. So I just call you right now out of your seats. Come find a place to be with the Lord, to rend your heart before him. Maybe there are some very clear areas the Lord is asking you to, to deal with, some areas you need to repent of, some things you need to confess before the Lord, some purity that he wants to cultivate in your heart. If you do have kids that are in the infant room or the toddler room, you do need to go and pick them up. All the other kids will be ushered up here by uh, the Kids Point leaders, but let us wait on the Lord. Much of our aim for Sunday nights is giving the church an opportunity to be the church by us being able to build each other up. So there is a sweetness of the presence of God that comes into this room as people wait on him and in purity and humility without an agenda. And the Lord will begin to activate people to minister one to another, to edify each other. So right now, let's just focus our hearts on Jesus. Lord, we've received your word, a weighty word of purposes that honestly are far above our intellect and what our hearts even want to begin to grapple with. So Lord, give us grace tonight. Give us mercy to begin to submit ourselves to your eternal purposes, to finally die to the traditions of man and our own agendas and what we're comfortable with and, and maybe what we've received in the past. We want your ways, as much as we can say that with all genuineness and purity of heart, we want your ways and your will in this place and in our hearts and in our families and in our kids and in our marriages. We want your ways, King Jesus. So we do rend our hearts. We do place ourselves once again on the altar and say, have your way in us, King Jesus. Purify us from all unrighteousness, from all impurity, from all pride and selfishness. Do a cleansing work in your people tonight. Do a cleansing work as we look to the cross as we look to your sufficiency, as we look at the, the power of your love on display, demonstrated through the resurrection and ultimately through the ascension, we look to you, King Jesus. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.